This episode of The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This Kindle book is brought to you by Dr. Damien Dauphiné, discussing specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic populations. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. Our podcast brings you into the world of podiatric foot and ankle medicine and surgery, discussing everything from common everyday complaints complex and unusual problems and their treatment options. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussain, fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon, and together we are the Pod Doctors. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows discussing the amazing foot and all the crazy ways it can malfunction and causes problems. Welcome to the Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein. Hello, hello. And we are going to jump right into discussing diabetic foot ulcers and uh, some of the the latest, I think, thoughts on how dangerous they are, for one, and then also some of the ways that we can can get these lesions closed and try to prevent amputation. So without... Uh, Further delay, Dr. Hussein, uh, what do you got for us here? Yeah, so diabetic foot ulcers, a very, very common problem that we see uh, in the world of podiatry. Probably the most common reason for foot ulcers in general, but uh, I just wanted to do a broad overview of what other type of foot ulcers there are or lower extremity ulcers that are common to our practice. Um, so if you're looking at the slides, um, we have venous uh, stasis ulcers, very common uh, due to venous regurge or venous insufficiency. What ends up happening is the blood flow coming down is great, or to an extent, and the blood flow coming back up isn't the greatest. So you end up getting a blowout of the skin. The skin ends up getting an um, irregular pattern of uh, ulcers. It's very sensitive. I mean, these are pretty... Uh, Sensate uh, patients, yeah. So these, yeah. Are, these can be very painful. So one of the major instigating factors is a problem with venous uh, valve system. And so those valves get destroyed often because of a clot. Uh, when the clots get resorbed, they unfortunately destroy the valve and you get you know, chronic edema or chronic swelling in the gator area, which is that area around the ankle. And uh, the yellow appearance is slough. That is a sort of a byproduct of the wound healing process that can get in the way. And these wounds are usually in people who have sensation, so they can be really painful. Yeah, ultra, ultra, ultra tender. Yes. And they're really tough to heal in some cases because treating the edema can be difficult. Now, that's again where we work closely with our, our interventional radiologists and interventional cardiologists and vascular surgeons who do venous work to try to address the underlying operators or whatever is causing this, this lack of return. And they can usually knock those out improve the situation uh, from a vascular standpoint, and then the overlying wound can can close. So I think one of the things to remember about these also is when you see a wound like that in that far left picture, 
if they've had a wound there for years and years and years, man, you got to biopsy that thing. Yeah, it could be any type of cancerous lesion, yeah. squamous cell. I mean, those can get missed, and it could be only a portion of the of the wound. So you may need to biopsy several areas of the wound, but it's not out of the question that a wound like that can end up being, uh, you know, some sort of cancerous uh, lesion that that has just been missed. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. Arterial ulcers. Yes. So that's your poor blood flow ulcers. Your blood coming down isn't the greatest. Um, imagine like you're throwing a rubber band around your finger, you know, the blood uh, gets cut off, your finger becomes ultra sensitive. Imagine that to uh, uh, exponential extent. Mm -hmm. You got no blood flow coming to an area and that's when you get the, the gangrenes. That black spot is called an escar, but it's a, a superficial gangrenous wound. I mean, mm -hmm. dry gangrene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these are oftentimes uh, smokers, people who've, you know, smoked for decades, you know, that you know, smoking affects the lungs, but it has a tremendous effect, a negative impact on our peripheral vascular uh, system, our arterial intima. The, the intima gets irritated by the nicotine is the thought, and you start getting plaque buildup. You start getting narrowing of these blood vessels. You get, uh, you get atherosclerosis where the vessels are getting hard, and all of that can lead to blockages that can cause tissue death, which is what happened in this case. And so the patient may have no lesions, and they may have some minor trauma, like they wore a boot that they don't usually wear, and that pressure point then yep. breaks down, and the patient's like, oh, the boot did it. Well, yeah, the boot may have been the thing that pushed it over the hump, but you had the background vascular disease for years because you were a 50-year smoker of three packs a day. So, you know, we have to have that discussion with folks, and they may have quit, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but they're still paying the price. And, and so there are uh, blockages that can be opened up. And that's where, again, we work really closely with our interventional radiologists and interventional cardiologists and vascular surgeons to, to open these blood vessels up, try to save the limb, you know, if it's possible. And oftentimes they can do that endovascularly where they're going through small incisions in the groin, doing balloon angioplasty or putting in a stent, which is like a cage that opens up and holds the blood vessel open. But again, yeah, this is where pressure points are really a problem. So we, we work closely in our diabetic patients specifically who have vascular disease on top of their diabetes and trying to prevent these pressure points so we can, you know, prevent new lesions. But th these are tough. These are some of the hardest, hardest things to treat because you're at the mercy of the blood flow. You're at the mercy of the plumbing. Yeah. The next type we have are neuropathic diabetic ulcers. These are caused by diabetic patients who have lack of sensation. I don't know if they should be called neuropathic diabetic or just plainly neuropathic ulcers. The main problem is the, the neuropathy. You're not feeling the sensation in the bottom of your feet. You're walking through the sores and blisters that form and ends up causing a small ulcer. Bottom of your foot, your heel, your toe, uh, wherever it may be. It ends up being a pressure point where the constant trauma is fighting to heal and your body isn't allowing to heal because you're constantly putting more and more trauma on it, aside from poor blood flow, uncontrolled diabetes, and other problems that are associated with it. And there's almost always some sort of deformity involved. Like in this patient, in that third picture there with the plantar wound underneath the second metatarsal head, that patient's got hammer toes and you know that toe is contracted. It's causing a retrograde force, meaning a backing force from the toe back to the metatarsal head pushing that metatarsal through the bottom of the foot, essentially. And if it was in, a, in someone who had sensation, that pressure point would probably be uncomfortable and they would address it either with changes in shoe gear or come see the podiatrist and get it padded or address the callus that's building up there. 
But in this case, this is probably a callus that got thicker and thicker and thicker until finally, you know, you end up with a, with a wound underneath it. So, you know, almost always there's some deformity involved with these pressure point ulcers that we see in the forefoot and even um, in other parts of the uh, you know, dorsal aspect or the top of the toes, you know, it's another place where shoes will wear on it. And it's almost always because of the hammer toes. So we see these a lot in neuropathic patients. Obviously, this is one of the most common wounds that we see every day in our wound center uh, in the office. And it's limb and life threatening. It is as dangerous as colon cancer. And that's uh, a shock to some people when they hear that. I mean, I'm sure you've said that to patients where yeah. you're like, hey, look, you need to treat this with the utmost urgency because this is a wound that is threatening your limb every day it's open. Yeah, very, very easy to treat if you, you know, address it properly. A lot of patients are like, eh, it doesn't bother me. It's it's not painful, you know, but that's that's exactly the cause of the problem. Right. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword. It makes it easier for us to debride them because they're not having pain, but they wouldn't have the wound in the first place if they had normal sensation. So when it's your first wound, hopefully that's an eye-opener. You know, it gets frustrating as, as the treating physician if your patient can, continues to get them over and over for completely preventable reasons. And that that's what we try to counsel folks on. Like, hey, look, you know, we need to get you into some diabetic shoes. We need to try to prevent some of the forces that were causing this. And sometimes we have to do surgery to address the deformity that's causing it. And, and that's not, I think, too aggressive at all. I think it's whatever you need to do to be able to prevent the wounds because the wounds are so incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And once you have a wound, you're more predisposed to having them over and over again. And there's a reason you're getting the pressure sore to begin with. It's not that, you know, uh, we're poor shoes that one day and now it's going to get better from wearing proper shoes. No, we need to address the problem. And like for this example, like Dr. D said, it's the second metatarsal that's mm -hmm. plantar flexed, meaning it's closer to the ground as compared to the other metatarsals. And we need to bring that back up and make it an even uh, surface, even plane for them to walk on. Yeah, distributing weight better. And sometimes you can do that. You know, oftentimes we can get these clothes with uh, offloading. We can get them onto a knee scooter. We can do some, some things to offload and then get the wound closed and then get them into diabetic shoes. And if that works, then they won't get the wound back in the same place. If that doesn't work, then you're really forced to at least entertain the idea of, of surgical correction of the deformity. And then that's a surgical offloading that can be extremely effective and is more a long-term solution. Yeah. And the last one is pressure ulcers. They kind of work hand in hand with the diabetic and arterial ulcer situation where there's an excess amount of pressure, most commonly in pressure specific ulcers, they're uh, bed bound or they're wheelchair bound or uh, they or have just had surgery. Maybe they, they just had a hip replacement and, and yeah. no one's paying attention. So, so literally pressure, you're putting excess amount of pressure, the skin breaks down and you end up getting a wound there. If you imagine that a healthy young adult is sleeping, they roll over multiple times at night because they're putting a lot of pressure in one place. A patient who's bed bound and cannot move, they don't move. And the reason that you move is because of that pressure, the, uh, the, the uncomfortableness. I mean, you're causing ischemia. So you're, you're causing local blood flow problems that end up causing pain in someone who has normal sensation. Yeah, and that's why it's very important for hospital staff or nursing home staff to, when they have patients who are bed bound or wheelchair bound, that they rotate them, they move them, they put them on an air mattress, they have them in offloading booties. Mm -hmm. um, Multipotus multi boots are, are yeah. effective when it's a recurrent problem. Yeah. So that's a boot that literally has a, a space between the back of the boot and the heel. So the heel is completely floated. So yeah, I, 
you know, I've had, I've had discussions with family members who are about to have hip surgery. Like my dad's supposed to have hip surgery soon. And I'm, you know, I'm going to make sure that, that, you know, uh, his, that the family understands, Hey, look, he's going to be at high risk for pressure ulcers because of his age, because of the immobility, the, the bed bound status during the initial post-op period, he's going to be at high risk for these. And they need to keep an eye out. They need to float his heels and use pillows behind his calf. So, you know, you, even if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have one of these, but you have family members who are getting older and are going to be having, you know, knee surgery, hip surgery, this is something you, you, you can absolutely have an impact on by making sure that, that their, their pressure points are, are being addressed so that they don't end up with one of these. Because it's interesting now the hospitals, you know, Medicare penalizes hospitals for allowing these to happen now. Yeah. So there's a certain percentage of that hospital visit if they get a, a uh, iatrogenic or a hospital, um, there's a term for it, um, essentially an iatrogenic wound. Um, be, they're being bed bound in the hospital, these are preventable. If they don't do the things they need to do to prevent them, then the hospital can get dinged on the financial side. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just a general overview of the type of, of uh, ulcers that we see. Today, we're going to be talking about diabetic foot ulcers specifically, and then we'll go into these uh, other topics eventually down the line. So diabetic foot ulcers, very, very common. They estimate that 15% of all people with a diabetic foot ulcer will experience an amputation at some time in their life. 15%. That's If you know any diabetics, that's that's like one in eight, right? Rough estimate, one in mm. some whatever, close to that number, one in nine. <clears throat> That is an extremely high number. Imagine a school bus full of diabetics, you know, that's extremely, extremely high risk for anyone to get any type of amputation. This isn't just ulcers. This is amputations. And and with 30 plus million people, I mean, that number sounds, I think that number is kind of low now. I think if you look at the latest stats, it's, uh, it's quite a bit higher than that. But yeah, I mean, if you're thinking, if you're thinking 15% of those folks, you know, with diabetes are going to end up, this is 15% of people with a diabetic, with a diabetic foot Okay. Ulcer. So yeah, yeah, diabetics with ulcers. And then the, the patients who have a major amputation, that mortality rate is really scary. So, you know, it depends on who you read, but you know, the five-year survival rate may be, you know, only 45%, 40%. Yeah. The newest numbers are actually at three-year 50% mark, the, the more updated numbers. Yeah. I don't, I don't doubt that. Yeah. And I mean, if you're, if you're thinking, oh, no, you know, uh, my family, we have diabetics and no one's ever had an amputation. I mean, just count the numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, further down the line, um, if one in, you know, eight people are getting amputations and, you know, seven diabetics, you know, you're the lucky few that haven't. And, and the percentage of U.S. adults that are affected by diabetes just keeps growing. This is 12.2%. Oh, I think it's higher than it's that higher now. Than that. In Texas, they were, uh, the Texas Diabetes Council was estimating by 2020, we'd have 4 million diabetics. And I don't know if that um, came out to be true, but we're probably pretty close. And they were expecting by 2040 that we'd have 8 million just in Texas. And that would be on the growth estimates of the population in Texas. That would be a quarter of the entire state. So if that comes true, a quarter of the state being being diabetic by 2040, there aren't going to be enough of us to treat these folks for all the complications that they're going to be um, suffering from, including you know diabetic foot ulcers, which are again as dangerous as colon cancer and threaten the limb every day they're open. Yeah, 25% of diabetics will develop a foot ulcer in their lifetime, and that you know, that stat seems to be pretty accurate uh, long term. And peripheral neuropathy 
and peripheral vascular disease are are the the two drivers of that for sure. And they work hand in hand. Uh, you can see that there's a five-fold increase with any type of foot ulcers with diabetes when you have any type of vascular problem. Right. It's something that can be very subtle and and scary because with the sensory loss, you may not be fully aware of how much arterial flow you're missing and until you have an injury that doesn't heal. So, you know, that that's really scary when people would typically have calf pain, they'd have claudication pain. So when, when you're when you have severe arterial disease and you're, you walk a couple of blocks and your calf starts to burn, that's called claudication. And that's ischemic pain or lack of blood flow to the calf muscle pain. We can measure that on the number of blocks. Let's say you could walk five blocks last year, but now you can only walk two blocks and then your calves are burning. You got to sit down, you got to rub them. You're, in, you're heading down the wrong path. That's, that's a patient who needs intervention pretty quickly because the blood flow is being so diminished that they're getting ischemic pain with just you know a few steps. So that, or even patients who tell you that, Hey, I can't stand having my feet elevated. I can't, I can't sleep at night unless my feet are hanging off the All bed. The bed. Yeah. yeah. That night pain that is, is positional is, is telling you that you've got severe arterial insufficiency. Yeah. What we would call critical limb ischemia. And that's something that needs to be addressed. And again, you know, we, we, we really work closely with our interventional guys to, to identify these patients and then address it as quickly as possible because you can lose tissue pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, back to the amputation rate, five-year post-amputation mortality rate is 50%. That means anyone who has an amputation within five years- Well, that's major amputation. Major limb, major right. limb amputation. So, yeah. That yeah. would be like a below knee amputation or above knee amputation. Yeah. Luckily, not toes. No. Yes. Thankfully. But but, but the, you know you lose a you lose a great toe you're you're about fifty percent more likely to end up with another amputation within two years yeah so that you know that's a significant problem the the loss of the big toe or the hallux as we call it throws off the mechanics and so you've got to be able to address that with uh, with shoe gear and and uh, sort of a prosthetic that you can use inside the shoe to protect the rest of the toes otherwise they end up with with other other ulcers that lead to amputation. So if your feet are at risk, if you have neuropathy, if you've got deformities, if you have a history of foot ulcers, you really need to be in in, uh, in our care one way or the other uh, routinely so that we can keep you out of trouble. Yeah, it's a team effort. It's your primary care, your endocrinologist, your diabetic specialist, your vascular doctor, and then your podiatrist. And then infection, infectious disease, if, if you have uh, osteomyelitis or bone infection involved, you know, it's it really is a... a it takes a team effort for sure. Yeah. I highlighted this stat at the bottom that foot ulcers precede 80% of non-traumatic lower extremity amputations. Only 80%. That means there's 20%. There's one in five out there who have a lower extremity amputation who didn't have a foot ulcer. And that's, you know, from they stepped on a nail, they got some type of infection, they had, you know, some type of trauma that broke the skin, got to the bone, and they had an amputation. But the good part about that is 80%, 80% are things that we see in clinic that we can help prevent. Um, any type of doctor, you know, that could help prevent, not just podiatrist specifically, your primary, your endocrinologist, your vascular doctor, your, your whoever's taking care of you, you tell them, look, I got a foot ulcer. You need to see a specialist. You need to see someone who can take care of wounds. I think that's one of the, wound care is interesting in the United States and probably elsewhere in the world too, is, is just to get off on a tangent for a second. It's one of those subspecialties 
that many specialties are involved in now. So we have pediatric surgeons doing wound care, some in their offices, some in wound care centers. Um, but, but in a lot of wound care centers, you have other specialists that have sort of retired into doing wound care. General surgeons, sometimes OB-GYN, endocrinology, general surgery. And not all of them have a broad spectrum background in wound healing and hyperbaric medicine. Some of them get my hyperbaric medicine trained and wound, wound care trained. But it's, it wasn't necessarily part of their entire uh, residency, residency or training. training or and it wasn't something they've, they've really studied for decades until they retired. And I think it's good and bad because you get this perspective of all these different specialties, which I think can be really helpful. But not all of them are surgical specialties. Not all of them debride well. And if you're not going to spend the time to learn how to do a good debridement and you're not going to spend the time um, to keep up and go to SAWC and go to the to the conferences, wound care conferences, and 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 really get board certified in wound management. I you know I think getting board certified in wound management is extremely important. One of the folks I'd like to interview is the president of the American Board of Wound Management. Yeah, I'd like to get their perspective on why that credential is important. I think it's extremely important. It's it it forces you to stay up with the the, the medicine, stay up with with the technology, and make sure that you're treating patients to the highest degree possible to the to the state of the art because if you're falling below that i think you're putting people you're putting patients limbs at risk and we can clearly see that when the limb is lost it, you know it's a death sentence for these folks so you know i'll get off my soapbox about wound care no it's <laughs> true i have a patient i mean i'm not going to drop names but i have a patient right now and their wound care doctor specialist is um doing all silver dressings Everything is silver on this patient, and it's been from day one. This episode of The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation. The Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation is a charitable 501-3C organization that supports residency training of podiatric residents in Texas and provides access to care for underserved populations in the United States and Mexico. If you wish to donate to the Texas Podiatric Medical Foundation, please go to our website, www.thepoddoctors.com, and donate. Thank you. So getting back to the, the topic here, I mean, I think this is a really nice overview of, of what's happening in diabetes. So yeah, Dr. Hussein, let's go through so- this. What happens with diabetes? It's not just that, you know, your diabetes causes high sugars and, you know, your sugars can get out of whack. But as far as diabetic foot ulcers are concerned, you get the sensory neuropathy. You end up getting damage to the nerves themselves. The nerves come down, they have tiny, tiny, thin filaments, as thin as hair, some of them. They have vascular wrapping the uh, the nerves and the nerve sheets, the small, small arteries. And what ends up happening is glucose breaks down from fructose to sucrose to blah, 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 and all the way down to sorbitol. The sorbitol ends up wrapping uh, or going in and to the level of the Schwann cells, which are wrapping the nerves, which are like your, your nerve conduit and ends up injuring those nerves. You end up losing sensation. That's why when you first start getting neuropathy, the patients are commonly complaining of burning, tingling, numbness, mm-hmm. paresthesias. That's like the sensation of having ants on your skin. And one of the reasons that that I mean that, that it's a real issue that, that we've seen over the years is, is the neural edema. So when that sorbitol involves the peripheral nerve, it can pull water into the nerve as well. And that's causing 
these nerves to be sometimes two and three times in normal size. And we proved that. We wrote a paper in 2005 that was published in JATMA about the Journal of American Podiatric Medical Association, where we looked at cross-sectional area of the tibial nerve in diabetics and non-diabetics and in diabetics with neuropathy. And when you compared those three groups, you could clearly see that the diabetic patients who didn't have pain and neuropathy complaints, their tibial nerves were about the same size as the non-diabetics. But in those diabetics who end up with severe, painful peripheral neuropathy and numbness, their nerves were two to three times the normal size. And so, you know, we, we've extrapolated from that, that, you know, that's part of the mechanical problem that we could, we can address surgically. And it's, it's why diabetic patients get carpal tunnel. One of the reasons why diabetic patients get carpal tunnel, about 30% more likely than non-diabetics. Their tissues around the nerve get glycosylated and stiff, and then yeah. the nerve gets swollen. And that combination is a, a classic entrapment. Yeah. Well, so when Dr. D says glycosylated, that's pretty much imagine your soft tissue is less elastic. Mm-hmm. It's it cross links uh, to an extent where it doesn't give anymore. It's like a rubber band who's gone stiff. And that in itself can cause impingement on the nerve. And that's when we were talking about going in and releasing those nerves. Mm -hmm. And and the motor neuropathy is interesting because when you've got basically a denervated muscle and we have four layers of muscle in the arch of the foot, and when those muscles get denervated where the nerve function to the muscle is now diminished to the extent that there's really no function there, those muscles will wither and atrophy and when you look at them in the or they can be translucent they don't look like the beefy red muscle tissue that you would expect and that's where you get these foot deformities these horrible claw toes you can get the bunions can can become a problem and then even something as severe as as charcot can be an issue and we'll talk all about charcot neuroarthropathy um probably have to do a a whole episode just on that because that'd be a fun one that's a big one yeah and the last thing that happens is the autonomic neuropathy. Mm-hmm. So those are the nerve fibers that are getting all the way to your skin and your sweat glands. So that's why when you see have a diabetic, they have that diabetic dermopathy. Your skin doesn't look as healthy. If you compare a diabetic's skin from their forearm to their tibia, their shin, uh, you can see a, a, a blatant, yeah, a blatant difference. And that and that leads to. The lack of flexibility of the skin can lead to how quickly an ulcer can can form. You've got this stiff, you know, poorly poorly vascularized tissue, and and it it can tear, it can break, it can develop calluses that then have ulcers underneath them. And that you can see some of that change when you do a decompression of these nerves. You can see their skin quality improve. Yeah, and that's something that's a little bit hard to measure. Still, they they have devices that can measure sweat gland. Uh, function now to help diagnose people with autonomic neuropathy and there's there's some indication that that that, that can be helpful but yeah that's that these are all things that can improve after decompressing those nerves and scott nickerson is a colleague of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon who's retired and he helped publish a paper from a, a large subset of data showing that if if you have these nerves decompressed the tibial nerve the common fibular nerve the deep fibular and superficial fibular nerve that you can reduce the recurrence rate of ulceration from about 20 to 25% down to three or five. Wow. So, you know, huge benefit. And we've seen this in patients who had one side operated on and then maybe some delay for whatever reason to get the other side done. And they ended up ulcerating on the side again that hadn't had the nerves decompressed. And Shai Rosen is a plastic surgeon down at UT Southwestern, who is involved with a massive randomized controlled study 
looking at whether or not these surgeries are as effective as we think they are. And they are looking at it from every angle you possibly can imagine. They are involving the endocrinologists, the primary care doctors, uh, the surgeons doing the surgery and trying to establish baselines for, you know, who would benefit from this type of surgery. And I think the preliminary results were really outstanding, showing that you could reduce ulceration rates. You can reduce complications when you do these, these nerve decompression surgeries. So the long-term, I think, data is still out there. They're still, you know, calling that. They've, they've only released a small amount of preliminary data in the last couple of years. That was presented at the American Diabetes Association meeting. I think that was in San Diego a couple of years ago. But we're, you know, we're waiting to hear how, how this, this huge study um, finalizes, but all the preliminary data was really positive. So um, it's exciting. Yeah. All we're doing is we're trying to get more sensation back to the foot. Mm-hmm. So as you go down this tract of lack of sensation, lack of muscle function um, and deformity, uh, you end up getting that repetitive trauma. Patients end up coming with calluses. They end up getting in the bruising under the callus and mm-hmm. you get that little uh, subcutaneous hemorrhage. And you're like, oh, you know, I'm just going to breathe that way. Uh, I have a suspicion that there's something under there because you can kind of feel it. It's fluctuant. Mm-hmm. It can be sometimes it can be red hot inflamed if it becomes infected. You debride it away. Wow, there's a ulcer under there. And, and the patient sometimes says, well, you, did you just create that wound? I'm like, no, wait a minute. This is the tip of the iceberg effect. You're seeing tissue loss underneath a callus that was there before we debrided it. All we've done is exposed it and... For good reason, because that's the only way you're going to be able to get this thing closed. Is you've got to get rid of all that that dead tissue. You got to get rid of all that overhanging tissue, and allow the wound to fill in from deep to superficial. Yeah. So I typically try to have I try to debride away half of it, and I show them, look, yeah. it's tenting. Mm-hmm. Let me show it to you. Uh, this is what's going on because I don't want patients to think I'm doing harm to them. I want them to see that this has been going on. Right. That. That callus is like hard as a rock. It's like like they're walking on stone. The calluses in diabetic neuropathic patients should be a red flag. And yeah. so I think there's this weird thought that calluses protect you. I nope. mean, weightlifters get them on their hands and people think it's, a you know, uh, construction workers get them on their hands. And they think they're protected. They're really not. And when they're, when they're on your foot and you're neuropathic and you can't feel pain, they are a huge red flag. They don't pop up out of nowhere. They are occurring because of friction and pressure at that site. So you have to offload that site somehow. And sometimes that requires surgical offloading. And sometimes, you know, we can do that with diabetic shoes and other padding, but that should be a red flag. So if you're a diabetic and you have neuropathy and you have calluses, they're not a benign problem. They are a red flag telling you that there's a pressure and friction problem at that site. And plus insurance covers all this. Yeah. They cover for your, your callus and things to be debrided. When you have diabetic with neuropathy, they don't cover them otherwise. So there's a reason behind it. Insurance is not going to pay for anything that isn't going to be medically necessary. It's a very simple logic. They've done their research. It's been proven multiple times and finally able to convince insurances, uh, hey, um, taking the pressure off of these areas, debriding them down is going to prevent them from getting ulcers, mm-hmm. getting infection, getting bone infection and getting some type of amputation, which is far more expensive to them in oh, the yeah. long run. Absolutely. So here's a little progression of foot ulcers. You can see it's a it's a pressure area on the grade zero, and as it progresses, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Level three, they're talking about down to level of bone, and that's our biggest fear. Um, once we get down to level of bone, we're talking about bone infection. Bone infection in adults is incurable. 
It can be subdued, but it can't be cured. Uh, well, it, it can be, but it, in, it involves an amputation. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the downside. But I, I don't I don't want to scare people to the extent that this is the progression that all wounds go through. No, we try we, to stop we, it yes, at we grade were, one and we're reverse. intervening. Yes, absolutely. And then the grade four and grade five, typically, you know that you can see gangrene in a massive infection, but but usually that that situation is based on vascular yeah. issues. And so the wound is is clearly a problem, but if you don't address the blood flow, if you don't address the perfusion issues, then you're not going to get anywhere. So, you know, that four and five, thankfully, are, are not extremely common, but they do happen and uh, they are an emergency. Absolutely. But so is grade two. Grade two is an emergency. And that's really what I think patients need to understand. There's different levels of classification systems that people use. Wagner, UT, uh, this is the Wi-Fi classification, Dr. Armstrong actually uh, mm. met him, very, very smart guy. Uh, but in general, um, they're all fairly the, uh, the same. They're all measuring the level of infection, level of Depth tissue of wound, loss, right. yeah, mm-hmm. and then the vascular uh, component to it. So, I mean, what are our treatment options? What we typically do, and it's a combination thereof, of wound debridement, infection control, vascular optimization, all floating, be it, you know, your shoes and soles, a total contact cast, a, a boot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hyperbarics when when available, wound vac, and then some type of skin graft or biologics. And we'll go through these uh, very simply. So wound. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. It is not just a flesh wound, Dr. Hussein. So, Way more important to that. that. That's great. I love that movie. So wound debridement, what we're doing is we're, we're removing all the devitalized tissue, all the dead tissue. Uh, it's like um, if you have a lawn and you have nothing but weeds there, regular grass is going to have a difficult time growing there. What we're doing is removing all the unhealthy components to the wound, getting down to a healthy, bleeding, granular base. That's your beefy red base and help hopefully getting it so it can grow in naturally. I, I, like, I liken it to like you're trying to, to get a garden to grow. You got to prune it back. So yeah. we're pruning back all of the, the dead devitalized tissue and we're trying to expose that beefy red granulation tissue and encourage that to grow and you're, you're going to need to probably do some pruning weekly for a while until you get that red beefy granulation tissue to fill the wound and then skin's going to grow over it but this these are great so this is these are well debrided wounds so if if you're before and after pictures with whoever's treating your wound if you have a diabetic foot ulcer out there if if the before and after pictures don't mimic these then whoever's treating you may not be doing an aggressive enough debridement. And they're, they're, you need to understand why that is. Is it because they're worried about your blood flow? Are they addressing your blood flow? Or is it they're just not comfortable with debridement? And that I think that's one of the problems. Yeah. There's still a lot of diabetic foot ulcer care that's being done in the clinics and not in a wound center. And there's not a lot of oversight there. And if, if the answer is they debrided my wound every week for two years, that's a problem. There, you have to be more aggressive with these. You can't just debride them every week and then hope that they'll heal. If these wounds aren't closing by 50% within a four-week period, they only have about a 3 to 5% chance of healing within 12 weeks. Yeah. If they're closing by 53%, then they have about a 67 70% chance of closing at week 12. That's a big difference. Very few things in medicine are black and white like this. It's a lot of gray area. But in this case... We know if that wound's not closing by 50% within four weeks, it's got almost no chance of doing it by week 12 if you don't intervene. So intervene inter- intervention would mean you know offloading, 
throwing everything but the kitchen sink at this. We can get them into the hyperbaric chamber. That would be fantastic. Sometimes we'll use growth factors. Sometimes we'll use amniotic tissues, anything to push it in the direction of wound healing. Yeah, because we're fighting an uphill battle when when we have a wound. It's not right. something that, oh, you know, we'll just fix this one thing. We'll make you switch your shoes. Oh, we'll put some antibiotic ointment on there and it's going to get better. No, we're fighting a multitude of problems that have kind of added up and got you to this point. Right. And, and vascular testing is extremely important. So that n- number one, we're going to debride the wound. We're going to check vascular status, either with a, a blood pressure cuff system or sending them to get arterial Dopplers uh, or doing TCOM. So transcutaneous oximetry is something we do in the hyperbaric world. It's a, an electrode that reads oxygen coming out of the skin, and it can tell us if that wound is getting enough perfusion to heal spontaneously, or does it need, need some help? And then we'd send you to a vascular or interventional uh, radiologist or cardiologist. Yep. Before we get too far deep into the wound, we're typically taking cultures. Very commonly, these wounds come in when some type of baseline infection, be it some type of staph, um, superficial, like staph epidermidis or staph aureus, hopefully not any type of MRSA type infection. But we're getting cultures. We're making sure that the topical agents that we're using on this are going to be able to maintain the infection control. If it's a difficult infection, we'll get infectious disease involved. We'll get you on some type of oral antibiotic or IV antibiotic, depending mm-hmm. on how deep the infection is. If it's And the, most of these are polymicrobial. So in other words, there may be four or five different bacteria involved. And when it gets that complicated and maybe the patient's a dialysis patient and they've got multiple medical problems, they're on multiple medic- medicines, that's really where, you know, I like to punt to the infectious disease guys and have them help us make that decision. Yeah, because they're going to be able to manage the, the kidney function aspect of it to determine whether or not there needs to be adjustments to the medication and all that. Those guys are so good at that. So, so some things that you're looking for for wound infections. Mm-hmm. So I only bring this up is because a lot of our, our neuropathic patients don't feel the pain associated with it. But I can't use pain as a as an indicator. Absolutely. But if you see red, hot, swelling, uh, any type of pussy drainage, something like you know that's not clear white or lightly yellow and tinged, you're looking at some type of infection. Call your doctor. This is um something that you don't want to base off of pain. If you have I can't tell you how many times it's happened where patients are like, you know what? I was uh, scheduled for an appointment in like a month or so. So I thought I'd just wait until uh, until then. I, they, I, it even drives me nuts when they say, well, I had an appointment on Tuesday and I noticed this on Friday. I'm like, where were you? Yeah. We're, we're on call th- 365, seven days a week. One of us is here. So yeah, that that's, sh- don't let that kind of thought process lull you into believing that you're going to be okay when 72 hours from now you could end up with a major amputation yeah so it happens i've seen it too many times to count so so vascular optimization that's Mm -hmm. very very important in uh, most of these patients that we see we need to get good blood flow down to the the extremity to get that wound to heal Mm -hmm. Um, they estimate that one in 20 americans over the age of 50 has peripheral arterial disease and a lot of the patients we see with diabetic foot ulcers are over the age of 50. And very simple thing. That's when we get our specialists involved. We do our vascular testing. We do our ABIs. We do our pad nets. We, we see how much blood flow is coming down. And if need be, the vascular doctor will intervene, be it, you know, some type of angioplasty. That's your rotor rooter type going in and cleaning up the vessels. They can put stents in to open up the vessels. Or if they need anything um, more, uh, they can do any type of bypass. I mean, one of these days, we'll have the, the vascular doctor come through and I think we can pick his brain. So 8 to 12 million 
people with peripheral arterial disease in the United States. That's just a huge number. You know, and a lot of this is being driven by, I think, you know, smoking history. A lot of it is being driven by clearly diabetes. Uncontrolled diet. Yeah. I mean, all your high lipid type diets. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to get plaques and uh, it's a known risk factor for any type of um, uh, lower limb amputation. And our, and our interventional guys would, would look at that stat. I'm sure they pushed this stat. The 65% of patients undergoing limb amputation in the U.S. did not have an ABI document. Or, and it's not just an ABI. They're saying that is the baseline. Yeah. But didn't really have any vascular testing done before the amputation, which is frightening. That's really scary because uh, from an interventional standpoint, you, how many of those limbs could you have saved? Yeah, there's so much we can do as part of, as part of um, treatment for lower limb amputations to prevent that from happening. The baseline, what we're doing is the wound care, the infection care, but there's a vascular component to most of these problems. Mm-hmm. If we can get more blood flow, more nutrients to the wound site, that's just going to heal up that much faster. Well, and, and it's how you deliver antibiotics. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've yeah. got to be able to get antibiotics to the area. So that's, that's, yeah, this is really great stuff. So this vascular intervention slide you've got here, I think really shows kind of what we used to do. I say we are, we would refer patients to vascular surgeons. I think the open bypass where you can see in the upper right-hand corner where they would graft around the blockage was the, the, you know, the going, the going procedure. And now things have evolved and, and now they're doing way more endovascular work where they're using stents. And this, this is a great picture of those stents in the middle. So it's a cage. They're using a balloon to open up that cage and press the plaque up against the walls just to recanalize that, that, the, the lesion. So they're opening up the blood vessel and then having the cage help keep it open. Yeah. What happened was before when they used to do angioplasties, there was a limitation on how um, how long it would last? How long it would last, yeah. and how low they can go? As, yeah. How low can you go? Yeah. As how close to your toes that you can get to? Um, they used to really get you know to the trifurcation where you're um, behind the knee. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're behind the knee, and that's pretty much you know maybe in a couple uh, centimeters further. But besides that, there was a real limitation. Now there's people that are actually doing it retrograde. That if mm-hmm. they can't get past. The, the behind the knee portion of your popliteal artery, they can come up from your ankle and open it up that way. I mean, it's so much more advanced than it used to be. Right. So I think uh, we're seeing a lot less bypasses and a lot more angioplasties mm-hmm. uh, on a whole. I mean, what do you think? Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. No, definitely. I mean, if you talk to the vascular guys now, I it's it's probably 80-20. I mean, we ought to have one on and, and get the latest stats, but I, I'm sure they're doing, you know, one and five open and uh, it's a good thing because those incisions are huge you can have wound healing complications from those large incisions running all the way down the leg and now you know if they can do it endovascularly it's a small incision that heals up beautifully in the groin and that's it yeah it's a day in day out procedure you have a one centimeter tiny little stitch smoking raises the risk of pad by 400 percent yeah that i mean if we can get i've thankfully i've convinced I used to keep track of this because it was like a badge of honor, like how many people I got to, to stop smoking. And it's it's in the you know hundreds and hundreds. It's probably up to like 500 now over 21 years. But that's one of my, that's really one of my bugaboos. And, you know, it's really hard to rationalize spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on wound healing technology, you know, amniotic tissues and 
uh, growth factors and surgeries uh, just, when someone's not going to stop smoking. Just doctor's office yeah. visits, that costs right. them money too. Yeah. And so, you know, it's almost like, uh, are you going to do a liver transplant on an alcoholic who hasn't stopped or who isn't willing to stop? That, that's really, that's a tough question. It's an ethical question. It's, it, it's difficult. So I have some patients that, you know, are clearly still smoking and they're honest with me and they still have wounds and we're doing everything we can to get them closed, but we're struggling. It's yeah. really hard. And we're, you know, we're using the, the latest and greatest technology because they're the folks who need it, but they're their biggest enemy. They're making it so much harder. Yeah. And it's an addictive drug. I get it. Nicotine's an addictive drug. So offloading, um, very simple, very effective. All we're doing is pretty much taking the pressure off of the ulcer spot. Just like we showed in that first picture where the, the sore was under the second metatarsal head. Um, if we take the pressure off using our, our you know, insoles, using our boots, using our total contact casts, I mean, whatever it might be. Um, simple thing, very effective, it, you know, standard of care. I like that the the suspension boot that you have there. Oh, the zero G. Yeah, I think that's cool. I I just you know they're the folks that I want to use it on. I think are so frail that yeah you you don't want to get them a hip fracture over over a problem. Yeah, that, you're better off putting them in like a wheelchair or yeah, something. Yeah, it's but I do like that for the younger. I think a little bit more uh, uh, a physically adept patient who you're not going to cause them to take a tumble because um, that's that is a really cool thing. So it's essentially you know, putting all the pressure on the calf and floating the foot entirely. Hyperbarics. So this is, uh, I don't know, uh, it's easy, you know, slam dunk as far as treatment goes. Hyperbarics is you're putting 100% saturation in a chamber, in a room or whatever it might be of oxygen now. So this is this is oxygen under pressure. Yeah. So you're at 2.4 atmospheres. I've been doing hyperbaric medicine for 20 years and... It is one of the most effective ways that we can turn wounds around. You can super oxygenate all of the tissues around the wound. And that causes the oxygen gradient to be thrown to such a degree that the body says, oh, that is a dead space. That wound is a dead space. And it starts to grow new blood vessels to feed that, that tissue. And it, and it is tremendous at decreasing edema. And so when you, when you decrease swelling get rid of all that tissue fluid around the wound bed that's just diluting nutrients and you super oxygenate the tissue around the wound, you can really jumpstart the wound healing process in a wound that was essentially being ignored. So you're converting by debriding it and you're getting the patient into the chamber, you're converting a chronic wound into an acute wound pretty quickly. And, you know, oxygen is vital for our white blood cell killing process. And so for it to be able to be antibacterial, you have to have oxygen. So that's a, it's a you get a double a double whammy there. Yeah, this is very simple. I mean, you literally go in. You're not. It's not invasive. You sit in a chamber. You're watching TV, and it's saturating the air around you. I mean, mm-hmm. to to the point where you're at, uh, you're basically at sixty feet of seawater. So it's the same pressure you'd feel if you were if you were scuba diving at sixty feet of seawater. Most commonly, the patients will notice that even their eyesight is slowly getting a little bit better. Yeah, that's a temporary, temporary, yeah, a temporary uh, benefit. But yeah, we tell patients don't uh, don't make any changes in your prescriptions while you're having treatments because when you stop, it'll probably revert back. But yeah, that they, they do find that uh, that is an interesting side effect. Well, this is exactly what Doctor D was talking about. The oxygen under pressure uh, promotes more nutrients to encourage blood flow mm-hmm. and and growth. Uh, very simple, very effective.
Woundvax. So I'm a big proponent of Woundvax. Um, very simple treatment as far as logically speaking, when you explain it to a patient, you're putting negative pressure on a wound, you're taking all the excess fluid out, uh, and we're promoting vascular growth into the wound. It's like a tiny little vacuum that you slap onto the ankle uh, that's pulling nutrients to the wound bed. Um, and then you can use your grafts, you can use all your, uh, your um, stem cell therapies under that and hopefully force it to heal. These, the, yeah, I used to joke that if you took away negative pressure wound therapy, hyperbaric medicine, and you know skin substitutes away from from me that we've had access to for the last twenty years, I, I would struggle getting wounds to close. Yeah, because they we are so dependent on those three modalities in twenty twenty because they work so well and they work in combination with each other. They work synergistically. So you know, that, I think. You can really stabilize and address very large, deep, cavernous wounds with negative pressure wound therapy, and uh, you know, doing it before I was I was part of you know the the generation of wound care docs that didn't have access to this, and I remember when I was at Shoal in Chicago working with uh, Jack Lees, who was a plastic surgeon at a wound care center in Chicago, really nice guy, taught me a bunch. You know, we were basically coding. Perlex rolls, which are gotten cotton rolls with silvidine and packing these massive wounds in the hip and in the buttocks area and in the abdomen. And they were using that as sort of a, not really a wet to dry, but essentially as a a packing mechanism. Like, yeah, idoform packing. Yeah. And you didn't have access to something like that. Now, clearly all of those wounds are being addressed with negative pressure therapy with, with, you know, these units that are accomplishing so much more than what we were able to accomplish by just packing the wounds with silvidine and Silvidine impregnated gauze, but that was the state of the art in 1995. So, you know, that was yeah. all you had. Medicine is advancing. There's there's a lot more than just doing any type of antibiotic ointment and a, and a gauze type dressing. Right. And, and then that's the other thing we got to touch on. Um, moist wound healing is the goal. And we still have this strange thought process that you need to let wounds air out. And that was probably the case in the middle ages when we didn't have wound gels and negative pressure wound therapy and and all these fancy things we have now but it's amazing that that thought process permeates not just americans but i have people from europe and asia and south america and australia who all say the same thing and i'm like no actually that's not what you want to do you want to keep the wound moist you want to obviously control infection but if infection is under control you don't want to let a wound like this dry out. It's just going to scab over and take longer to heal. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is a great, this is a great um, negative pressure um, series of, draw, of diagrams you have here and really beautiful wound examples with exposed tendon. Yeah, th- those are your tendons on the top of your foot that you can see yeah. in that picture. Uh, they did the wound back therapy. They watched it heal over. You want that granular tissue to come back over those tendons. And then once you get to the point where all the tendons are covered, I typically will put some type of skin graft mm-hmm. on there or right. some type of uh, stem cell therapy and hopefully complete it all the way. Just push it to that finish line. And with the top of the foot, you you can use a split thickness skin graft. And that was done here. Yeah. And that makes sense. But on the bottom of the foot, that doesn't work very well. The tissue's not durable enough, and so that's where we'll go with more of the amniotic tissues to really let the body fill that gap uh, And instead of trying to split thickness skin graft because you end up with this corrugated cardboard appearance to the tissue. It can be more scarred and less less durable to, to weight-bearing pressure. Yeah, more likely to fail in the future. Right, so we, we try to avoid that on, on the bottom of the foot. 
but yeah, on the, you clearly, you know, split thickness skin grafts work great. This is a, oh, they're awesome. Yeah. Uh, so just like Dr. D said, uh, you get that corrugated effect. That corrugated effect is from uh, we fenestrate or, or mesh or whatever you want to call it, uh, the graft so it can cover a larger area. So if we're taking it from their their thigh or their, their calf or their abdomen, um, we can cover a larger surface area. So we're not trying to cover it from well, cover one wound by causing another wound. Mm-hmm. And um, typically when, when I do this, I'll, I'll cover the the graft site with the stem cell graft um, and hopefully heal up both wounds fairly quickly. And I do use the wound vac on top of these. It works very well. It prevents, you know, any, any of your seromas or hematomas from forming under it. Right. You don't want fluid underneath your graft, right? Um, last thing, amniotic stem cell therapy. Very, very new age. I don't know. What do you want to call it? It's probably the... Well, I think... Uh, amniotic tissues, uh, placental tissues have been around for a hundred years. Yeah. The I think it was like the was, 1890s when they first started using them or something were, like that. They were slapping them on stuff at Johns Hopkins in the early 1900s. The problem was they realized pretty quickly that they, they didn't have a way of processing this tissue. And so that really made it fall out of favor until the processing technology was developed where they could make these tissues safe. To, uh, to just be able to screen patients that were donating these tissues and then also be able to test them. So once that hurdle had been eliminated, now we're at, we have access to a ton of uh, umbilical cord materials and amniotic and chorionic materials from the placenta and the, and the umbilical cord that can do some pretty amazing things. And there's some really good level one studies that this one by Teitelbach, I read that one um, that you have here, using epifix is uh, you know the mimetics folks have done a good job of putting out some really well done research to prove what epifix can accomplish and i think we use it frequently because we can just pull it off the shelf and apply it to an appropriately prepared wound bed and really see some terrific improvement in the wounds week by week yeah in this study um at the 12-week mark was where they were trying to measure their primary outcome. Mm-hmm. 81% of wounds that were uh, treated with the Epifix versus 55 with baseline therapy. Uh, 81%. I mean, that's where that's the group I want to be in. That's yeah. the group I want to be treating. And they were, I think, the 55% standard of care. The standard of care was essentially um, moist wound healing. Yeah, antibiotic dressings, yeah. zero-form adaptic, iodine. Yeah. Nothing nothing too fancy, but, but very common. I mean... Yeah, that's that's the standard, and you can see when you're when yeah when you're essentially limited to the standard of care, you're not going to get that wound closed in a reasonable amount of time. So Caparuso, that's that's Joseph Caparuso from one of our colleagues down in South Texas. So yeah, a little shout out to Joe. <laughs> I got a couple other ones in here. I mean, this was a randomized control trial for Epifix versus standard of care dressings. You can see at the uh, you know at the one week mark to the the six week mark where uh, it's just far faster. Uh, there's there's growth factors that we're missing. There's um, something lacking that's not allowing these wounds to heal. So when we use any type of stem cell or any type of skin graft type substitutes, we're putting back what's missing to force these wounds to the finish line to to get them to heal up it, completely. Part of it's scaffolding. So part of it you need to have uh, a scaffolding matrix that the skin cells can grow over. And then, like you said, the other part of it is is really uh, growth factors. The, the diabetic patients are deficient in growth factors, and so these wounds stay chronic, and, they, and the body's not addressing them. 
So we turn them around by debriding them, getting rid of the dead tissue, getting some acute bleeding, and then applying you know, a matrix, a scaffold that has some sort of biochemical response in the wound bed. And placental tissues have been shown to be really effective for that. So some last facts, some last stats for you guys. Uh, like we already said, 15% of people with diabetes will develop a diabetic foot ulcer in their lifetime. Uh, the hard stat right here, every hour, 10 Americans undergo an amputation due to diabetes. And 50% of all diabetic foot ulcers will become infected, resulting in hospitalization, which is another cost, you know. Right. And uh, another very preventative problem. Yeah. And then yeah. last, uh, up to 24% of all diabetic foot wounds will result in an amputation. 24%. And it doesn't have to be that way. No. Well... Thank you for uh, listening to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please like, follow, subscribe, thumbs up, whatever uh, you need to do. Trust us. We're the doctors. <laughs> we'll see you next time on the pod doctors. Thanks, Dr. Hussein. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the pod doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See y'all next time. Bye-bye.